Welcome to the LEAP Podcast. This is Tammy Tran and Tammy Bui, your host for the LEAP Podcast. LEAP stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. I'm so excited that you're here. I say that every podcast, but this one is is especially special. I want to thank you because this podcast, Tammy Tammy Tran and I could not have done it without LEAP, um, Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. And so as the president and CEO, I would like to have this chance to have you share a little bit, Linda, about why you took a leap of faith to do this podcast and why now? Why is it so important? Well, first, I just want to say thank you to you and Tammy for even coming to me and and to bring the stories of our communities to anyone who's interested in listening to to this podcast and doing so, you know, from a from a perspective of being able to um you know, honestly, I think getting to know um, Asian American women in this particular series from a three-dimensional kind of perspective. Um, you know, you were the one to say to me and Tammy, you both have to interview Manju. Um, there is so much that she is doing at APCON. I know you're a board member. She actually talks about you in this episode and how there is a network of amazing women that she can tap into and draw energy from um, because this work is hard. Um, and Tammy and I had to t- a chance to talk to her about um, how this is hard work that you really have to dig into. You have to know why you're doing it. Um, and yet she was she she mentioned how she was inspired by the amazing women in particular particular and the people that she gets to talk to, the kindness and the compassion and the passion of the people that she works with every day. And so I want to ask you, Linda, um, tell us about how it is that you, you, what pushed you to say to us and push us, you have to talk to Manju because this This came about before Georgia. Um, Unfortunately, that happened. But as we have said, this is not new. And so maybe intro for us a little bit about uh, your relationship with Manju, uh, what you're excited about and hearing in this episode. I felt that it was important for the both of you to interview Manju because, um, you know, that anti-Asian hate crimes, the bias and the harassment that members of our community have been facing for now. At the time, it was roughly about maybe close to a year. I feel like it had been ongoing. And I was really proud as a board member of APCON, I'll say I was really proud when um, Manju spoke about um, APCON partnering with Chinese for Affirmative Action and uh, Russell Jung at, at San Francisco State University to form Stop API Hate. And I thought this is wonderful because now, you know, it's important that we have those numbers. And fast forward to 2021, and we're still facing the same kind of hate, the bias and the harassment, if anything. It was escalating and I really felt it would be important to use our platform to really amplify the message about what is happening in our community and that the incidences are not declining, they're escalating and they're, they're, you know, they're increasing. And on top of that, I also thought that Manju's a really interesting person. She, you know, as a nonprofit 
executive, I will say that anybody, she's a two-time executive director. Anybody that's going to do this job more than once, there is not only a love, you know, there's a little bit of, wow, she's, she's just a really fantastic leader. And I am just, you know, um, so just honored to be a part of the APCON board and being able to support her, but also to be um, in the presence of these other people who are just highly supportive. Um, and we all, I believe, care about the community. I think it's important for people to know, you know, the amazing leaders that we have. And I just thought, you know, she's an amazing leader doing some very timely and important work. And it would be a great way to also uh, remind people about what's happening. And she was, to me, the best spokesperson to speak about what was happening. And then, of course, Atlanta happened. Welcome. Today, we're, we're very excited and honored to have a special guest, Manju Kukarni, Executive Director for the Asian Pacific uh, Policy and Planning Council. Manju is a racial justice attorney and an activist who has worked on behalf of communities of color for over 20 years. Thanks for joining us, Manju. You know, I, um, I so miss our interactions. I think we were saying earlier how we got to see each other at a dinner before. I miss those, but I, I'm, I'm grateful that we can still have these conversations. Um, so thanks for joining us today, Manju. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, I, t- I told Tammy, one of the big reasons I wanted to do this is because I, I feel more than ever, we um, need these kinds of connections with one another and there's so much going on and you're doing so, so much work, Manju. Maybe, um, can you give our listeners a snapshot of what a day in the life of Manju looks like? What does it look like to be an executive director of a, a, a major organization with other organizations that are a part of it? Um, what does that look like? look like for you? It's so hard right now, Tammy, um, in the world that we're living in, where we're not having the connections that we need. Um, and frankly, our health and mental health so desire. Uh, in terms of my own day, I mean, there's some pluses too, which is that um, it's very easy to move um, from the bedroom to the home office. Um uh, and, you know, of course, grab some breakfast and coffee and things like that. And so I think in terms of my own day, it's, of course, like many of us, just looking through our emails and texts to see what's ahead of us. And um, right now, um, given the work that we're doing um, with Stop API Hate, unfortunately, it also means looking at the news and seeing, you know, what is sort of the latest that's been reported. Luckily, what I'm able to do is... Um, in many ways, sort of spring into action. So with our collaborative partners, um, trying to determine what maybe some next steps are if a family or individual has reached out to us, either through our website or through other mechanisms. And so much of my day then is meeting with staff to determine what those next steps are. What are the policies that we want to put in place um, to address what's happening in our world right now? And so, I mean, to me, that's actually what gives me um, the fuel that I need uh, every morning is to know that by the end of the day, we'll actually be able 
to take action in a number of important ways um, and at least begin to sort of move that train along toward what our communities need. Manju, I'm very curious just about your background. Um, I believe you were born in India um, and, and you know, had spent some time in Montgomery, went to Duke University and you were pre-med. But today you're a civil rights attorney. You're heading up a nonprofit organization. Can you can you walk us through your, your journey and, and, and you know, uh, what brought you to today? Sure. What happened for me is uh, I was two and a half years old when I came to the United States with my parents. Um, they both happened to be physicians. So right away in Kansas City, um, the reason we came is that's where they did their residency programs. And then um, when it was time um, for my father to find a place for to practice medicine, uh, he actually worked in what was an emerging field at that time in the early 70s, which was neonatology. So these are those NICU units for premature babies. And so he essentially helped to create a NICU in Montgomery, Alabama. And Montgomery was an interesting place, right? Um, It was sort of the cradle of the Confederacy, Mm -hmm. but then also a place where the civil rights movement got its start. And -hmm. I would say that for that reason, I mean, it really shaped my career path. Um, I mean, I got to see really some of the successes of the civil rights movement, just in sort of my friendship circle, the, um, you know, schools were obviously integrated by that time. And I think there was a real openness to immigrants. There was an openness um, to sort of righting the wrongs of history. And so I would say in the 70s and 80s, you know, I had a really happy childhood, Um, I had great friends and happened to, you know, go to really great schools. But what I was able to also see is, um, you know, the job wasn't done. And my mom actually experienced discrimination uh, when she applied for a position at a hospital, local hospital. In the interview, it was like several white men and they basically berated her for being a foreigner and coming to the United States and essentially stealing their jobs. Um, and, uh, so in the course of that interview, they made a number of racist remarks and my parents decided not to stand for it. And they were in a position to retain an attorney who happened to be on the board of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So it was through that lawsuit. Obviously, I mean, I was still pretty young. I think I was 10 years old at the time, but I could just sort of, as the oldest child, hear what was going on in the background and they were able to challenge it successfully. And not only for my mom, but actually for all foreign medical graduates in Alabama, they were able through the um, settlement to change how the program worked because prior to that time, they had almost no foreign medical graduates. I think they had one person who was from Germany. And that was it. So no person of color um, through those programs. And so I think what that taught me and that's how, you know, originally I wanted to be a doctor to follow in my parents footsteps. But I actually followed in their footsteps in a really different way, which is to challenge injustice. And for me, seeing that case and seeing that the law made a difference was really what propelled me. 
uh, into my career as a, as first a civil rights lawyer and then moving on to lead uh, organizations of color and organizations in the AAPI space. Uh, so that's a little bit of what happened to me. And it turned out actually that my first job after college was working at the Southern Poverty Law Center. So after that, it was a done deal. I knew this was what I wanted to do. Um, that was that this was going to be my life's path. Were, was your parents initially um, supportive? Because I, I know there's a lot of folks like myself. I started pre-med. I obviously didn't go that route. Um, and I, I think that um, how, did, how did your parents initially react? And do they know today that experience that inspired you to, to take a different path? Um, well, so they were not happy. And at that <laughs> time, uh, I could say that unequivocally. At the time, they there was a lot of concern about lawsuits against doctors and and things like that. And so they felt like in some way it was a betrayal, like, oh, my gosh, you know, lawyers are the worst. Right. They're they're trying to bring us down. Um, but. And even it so happened, actually, that my grandparents were visiting at the time. And so they also weighed in in a very negative way. My grandfather um, said, you know, that I should sort of be pulled out of college. Um, my grandmother said that I should just be married off. Um, and so it was just sort of interesting, like their reactions. Um, and keep in mind, my my parent, father's parents, you know, raised, um, you know, three girls who were all professionals. So, you know, to say something like that, I think just indicates like how upset and angry they were at the time. But, um, you know, a number of years later, when I was in my late 20s, uh, I was just on a car ride with my mom and she just randomly said, you know, you did the right thing. This was the path for you. And so that I was so heartening to hear that and the acknowledgement because, you know, it's not just in my family because my parents were doctors, but right. Like Tammy, you alluded to the fact that like in a lot of Asian American families, that's what you aspire to, right? Everyone aspires to be a doctor and that's how you make your parents proud. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, um, they're no longer with us today, but I just, that conversation I was able to have with my mom was, um, was just so important to me. Wow. I feel like there's so much Manju that we just covered there. It's this interesting, um, I, um, there's a couple of things that stand out to me. One is this duality of how as Asian Americans, we have this, um, commitment to our families, right? Like this desire to make sure that because of the sacrifices that they've made, that we don't let them down. Um, but I would also say the interesting thing is Manju, your parents were doctors. So yes, they all want us to be doctors, but they also challenged, um, the status quo. Whoa, right. So I think that's so amazing because I think that's another value that culturally don't always um, like we it's it's a it's a it's an interesting dynamic because on one hand, we're like told to keep our heads down and not cause waves. Right. Like just do your stuff and not bother anybody else. And then I don't know if you grew up like that, but that's how I grew up. Um, and yet at the same time, in your instance, they also 
saw that something was wrong and your mom said, no, we're not going to stand for this. I'm going to stand up not just for myself, but that it impacted others. My question was going to be for you. How can you tell us a little bit about your family and how that upbringing also translated, not just to your career, Manju, but how you've raised your family? Tell us a little bit about um, your family, if that's okay, and, and what kind of values you've brought into the upbringing of your children. Right. Um, what you said, Tammy, is so important. Um, and it's funny, too, that one of the responses I had after I uh, decided to pursue law uh, to my parents is I said to them exactly what you said, which is, you know, you challenged uh, injustice. And I should say that one thing my parents and I did, um, and I was uh, significantly older than my two sisters, so it was just uh, they were not old enough to engage in these very um, lively debates about politics. And so even though my parents were doctors, they were really interested in the world around them. And so later I said to them, I said, it's because of those debates that we always had. I love those debates. And so that's why, you know, I mean, it really sparked, um, interest for me in pursuing, you know, some of these uh, areas. Uh, in terms of my family, I mean, one thing I want to just call out right away is, <clears throat> that I had such a strong mother, um, strong in many respects. And my God, she is really my idol. And I'm, and I'm sad. I can't tell her that now. Um, the fact that like, she pursued medicine at a time that women were just denied every opportunity, right. Um, to work outside the home and to, um, you know, they were just really relegated to the home and hearth, the kitchen, the child rearing. Um, and you know, she managed to do it all. Uh, I will tell you that not only did she have a thriving practice, uh, she was a family practitioner, but she also would make a full Indian meal, every night, practically, you know, from scratch, right? <laughs> totally from scratch. Um, and so just like how much energy did that woman have? I mean, I'm in awe of it. But so, I mean, I think it's just sort of, to me, that's what I look at sort of in thinking about my own daughters. And I have two girls is, you know, how can I sort of transmit to them, the strength, um, some of her wisdom, her perseverance, um, her belief in herself, despite, you know, a lot of doubters. Uh, and so I really try to encourage them when they, you know, feel that imposter syndrome, which sadly they still do. You know, I thought it was because I was a child of immigrants. Same thing for my husband who had a similar sort of trajectory being born in India and coming to the U.S. when he was three. As we thought, well, gosh, I mean, we're raised here. Are we and we're actually pretty confident people. How is it that our kids are lacking that confidence? And so now I see that it's also about race. Right not just about that sort of unfamiliarity with being an immigrant or as my parents would put it, a foreigner, but uh, about race. And so I think the last part I will say to answer your question is helping them to understand how the world works and how they too will have to fight some of those injustices. 
Um, Manju, the the topic of race is something that, um, you know, during this pandemic, um, we're, we've been forced as a society to look at in so many different ways. Um, and but what you brought up in terms of how your daughter, your your mother, yourself having to, to experience it and confront it, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like a lo- as much as um, progress that we've made in equality and equity, there's still so much more work to be done. And the work that you're currently doing through the Asian um, Pacific Planning and Policy Council informing the Stop AAPI Hate is something that you know, it's inspiring, but it's also at the same time, very concerning that we still have to have these conversations. We still have to do this type of work. Um, can you share with us um, how how you um, find that motivation <laughs> to continue this work for, for, for so long? I mean, I, I think about that 10-year-old girl that watched her parents go through what they went through. And today, you know, you're still having those conversations and observing those things happening in, 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 a, in a different way, right? But still similarly with your daughters. Right. So when we unpack it, I mean, I think what we see um, is that there is so much work to be done, right? That what COVID has made apparent to us, one is that we still have so many inequities in our infrastructure, in our public health systems, um, that we don't, you know, we're not able to take care of our communities, right? Um, African-American folks have been hit really hard, Latinx, Pacific Islander folks, right? And why is that? Like, I think we need to, dig really deeply to see and understand um, what causes those inequities and then in the long term, how we solve them. Right. And I think what we're seeing, too, and um, I'll just point to what happened a year ago, which is how we got started on this path is that there was um, a middle school child in Los Angeles who was physically attacked and verbally assaulted on the schoolyard. In the middle of the school day, another child approached him and said, "Um, you're a COVID-19 carrier, go back to China. And when he responded and said, I'm not Chinese, he was punched in the face and had 20 times. And so what was interesting to me and really, really upsetting is two things. One is that that type of um, racism, those attitudes and biases had crept in to middle school. Right. They were not just sort of in the adult community, but they had hit kids. Right. Um, And the second is that this incident took place before there was a single confirmed case of COVID-19 in Southern California. So the racism actually spread before the virus itself. And so that tells you how sort of communicable racism is in America, right? And so when it comes to my kids, they live with that. You know, even in their schools in Los Angeles, they've been asked, what are you? Like, you know, and they get nervous. I will tell you in elementary school, when I would drop them off, I would sometimes have Bollywood songs on in the minivan and they would say, turn it off, turn it off. I don't want anybody to hear the song. And so like, how do we work on those sort of underlying issues? But when we talk about like what motivated me in terms of doing this work, it was 
being able to connect the dots. So, you know, connecting the dots between what happened to Chinese Americans in the 1800s with South Asians who were denied citizenship in the 1920s with Japanese Americans in the 1940s. Um, And then my own family, right? My own family is part of that struggle. But then seeing it and knowing that I chose the law because I do believe even now it provides relief, not in every way. Right. Because some of those attitudes, um, you can't legislate them out. Right. You've got to do more heavy lifting, but it can help a lot of other folks who've been discriminated against, uh, even those who've suffered hate crimes. Um, So that's what sort of motivates me is knowing that I have the tools in my tool belt to do something about it. Wow. Um, you know, Manju, when you talk about how your children get asked the question, what are you? Um, I, I can tell you, I'm sure Tammy's gotten it. I'm sure you got it. Um, so it is uh, it is incredible and yet not really that the same kinds of questions are being asked. I was going to ask you, um, given what you're saying, what motivates you, what things, even though we have so much more work to do, what things have given you hope? What things are the flickers of um, uh, the w- w- uh, progress that you've seen over the years? I ask that because I have to, I, I ask that of myself sometimes because I look up and I think to myself, oh my gosh, I remember going to college and wishing and hoping that there were other um, API women that I could say I was, uh, that I had learned about. And I felt so sad and um, kind of angry that I didn't know more about my history, for example, right? That I thought, why is it that I don't, I don't know more about myself and about my, um, about other women leaders. And I remember clinging on to like the Helen Zia's and the Yuri Kuchiyama's and others. And I, I thought to myself, how, why am I only learning now? And so I guess it's a long way of asking you, there are some phenomenal leaders that have, and you Manju included and your mom, right. That have laid the path for us. Um, and yet there is so much more work. Where are the glimmers of hope that you've seen, um, and the fights that you've been in um, that 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 inspire you that you can share for young people who may still want to see what that can look like for them to to do this work. I think there's actually so much to be hopeful about right now. Um, one is, you know, being at AppCon, and I tell people every day that this is my favorite job because I get to work with. Um, 40 collaborative partners. They're not only their executive directors, but their staff. And they are some of the kindest, most generous people I've ever met in my life. And so when I think about, you know, sometimes people, you know, will say, you know, Asian American Pacific Islanders are meek or we're, we're um, quiet or we're, you know, I mean, a lot of things. But you know what I look at is the other side of the coin, which is we're kind we're gentle with each other. We are so generous and welcoming and collaborative. I mean, whether it's AppCon or Stop API Hate, like getting up every morning and then being on these Zooms, they're exhausting, but not when you see faces of people you so admire and you love working with. Like they're fun. They're um smart, they're brilliant, they're dedicated. And I mean, that to me is the AAPI movement in a nutshell, is just the best people. I really, I very rarely come across people who are unkind, 
who are ungenerous in these spaces. Um, and it actually really shocks me and catches me off guard because it's rare. It doesn't happen very often. And um, that's especially true with the women. I mean, most of my board is made up with amazing, amazing women, including, of course, uh, Linda from Leap. And just when I talk to these folks, I have to tell you, you know, back before COVID, I would get a chance to have breakfast or lunch and, you know, have these meetings with them. And I would learn so much from them. And to just like kind of, you know, sit in the space of brilliance, like it's just inspiring and motivating. Uh, and you want to be part of that, right? It's, and it's galvanizing. Um, so I would say that's sort of the second piece um, of my answer is just to be around. And you're exactly right, Tammy, that we have a long lineage of kick-ass Asian American mm-hmm, Pacific Islander mm-hmm. women. And what part of what I think our job is for our kids and um, for those of us who have daughters is to remind them and to uncover mm-hmm. those women mm-hmm. who have been around for a long time. We just, our history books don't tell us those mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. It was only because, and I will tell you, despite like sort of, you know, my family having, um, you know, multiple generations of doctors, I did not know until I started teaching at UCLA, a class on South Asian American communities, that there were two um, South Asian women doctors that came in the early 1900s. Uh, the first one was Anandibai Zoshi. And um, she actually happens to be from my ethnic community as well, the state I'm from in India. And so, my God, you know, I feel sad that I was not able to share that story with my mom because my mom is part of then that lineage, right? Um, the last thing I will say too is to take it back to Stop API Hate. The last thing I'll say to connect it to Stop API Hate is we did a survey of respondents. So individuals who had uh, completed an incident report to ask them, you know, what motivated them. And you will not believe this, but the number one answer was civic duty. And, so, you know, we thought it would be that they needed help, you know, maybe legal assistance, maybe they might want mental health help, uh, which are all important. And we're working to try to provide that to them. But the fact that they said civic duty just really is awe inspiring to me because they understand that this is part of the movement. This is part of building capacity. This is part of understanding what our communities go through and then address those problems. That sounds like that common thread, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, similar to what you said about, you know, being on a Zoom meeting and seeing the faces of people that inspire you and wanting to be part of something, you know, bigger, being part of that movement. Same thing for these people that are, you know, um, reporting these incidences, right? That civic duty, that's something I I found really compelling. Um, Amanju... um, you know, this podcast, one of the things that we want to focus on is, you know, leadership education for Asian Pacifics. And I I just love hearing about your leadership journey. 
um, and, and how you're, you know, it just sounds like you're still so motivated and to, um, you know, um, despite all the different issues that you have to deal with, because it could be really draining when you think about the, the trauma, the violence that that's being, um, you know, um, leveraged against our, our, our most vulnerable in our communities. What, what is it that keeps you going, you know, beyond uh, being surrounded by people? You talked earlier about your toolbox, um, can you share a little bit more about what's in your toolbox that maybe others can learn from and, 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 you know, and take to put in their own personal toolbox for their leadership journey? Well, you know, one thing, when I look at what that journey entailed, um, I see a few sort of key components, uh, I did have a lot of family support, you know, after um, my parents realized sort of that um, that I was going to be a lawyer, I think really supporting me through that. And, you know, many times my mom would say when my kids were younger, you know, just you know, bring them over here when you have to work or do something like this was, and she was still practicing, but it would be in the evenings and she would support me. My mother-in-law actually watched my daughters during the day, um, before they went to preschool. Uh, so all of the support that that provided to us, um, and, you know, a few other things that I think I had were opportunities to continue to work, but also be a parent. And I think too often, you know, in our, um, you know, path toward leadership, those are not open. Right. And they just say like, you have to work super, super hard. And it has to be, of course, at that time that you are having children and raising children and it becomes extremely difficult. And one thing I'm so grateful for is, um, at the National Health Law Program, where I was for 11 years, they allowed me to work um, 75%. So not a full-time schedule. Uh, but not only did they allow me to do that, I continued to be able to move up um, and gain leadership. So I became a senior attorney working less than full-time. And we're often taught that that's not possible because there you know, are these odd beliefs that you're not dedicated to your work if you're not working 110% or 150%. And that's just frankly not true. And I try to actually bring that now as a supervisor to employees. You know, I have an employee who's doing the same thing I'm I did, which is she wants to work less than full time uh, because she's raising a family. And, and that can be true for for men as well as women. Um, you know, the other thing I will say, though, too, is really um, kind of being able to seek out leadership and it being given to me. So very early on, my first job, actually, at a civil rights law firm um, Within a year, I became a manager of eight employees and uh, part of a leadership team of women uh, at this firm. But, you know, they were all in their 40s or 50s. And I was like 27 or 28. But they let me do that. Right. Like they and they encouraged me and they groomed me. And so, by the way, all of that was so important for those times that uh, and I'm sure the two of you have been in these spaces. You know, I was on boards of directors with, you know, I'll have to just say some pretty mean white guys. Uh, and they would always talk, try to talk over me. They would 
do stuff uh, that was really demeaning. And I decided to take it on, frankly, in just small ways. And just to say, you know what, I'm not going to let you do that. I, I didn't have to say it. I just did it right where I just kept ta- I didn't let them interrupt me. I just would keep talking. I would be prepared for all of the meetings so that they they had nothing where they could say that I was lesser than them. I was actually much better than most of them. Uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to brag for a minute and say that. Um, but then that did get me the respect, um, that I need, you know, that I deserved, Mm -hmm. frankly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what I would say to what Manju just said is I feel like many of us know exactly what that feels like, unfortunately, right? I think many of us don't know always what to do, right? And so I think um, when Manju said there, she knew, first of all, that she was better than them. I think we have to remember that sometimes, right? And, And have the confidence to know that it's not what we know. We, we, there's not a question. We are smart and we can do the job. I think it's being able to like actually own that space and articulate it sometimes that I know for me when I was growing up, particularly in my career, that I questioned all the time. Uh, and so when I so what I was going to say is having Manju and others show us what is possible allows us to then seek leadership because we see, oh, Manju has kids. Manju didn't have to decide it either or. I think that those choices probably weren't as easy during that time. I'm not saying it is now, but I think seeing women in those leadership positions and particularly women that look like me, it, may, it has made me feel like I can do that. So I wanted to just thank Manju for being an example of that. And I think that's a responsibility that I feel also that when I get into these positions, that I seek out others that may not be given that opportunity Um and so, it, and so it, to me, it also translates when I'm in a boardroom and I'm in those spaces, I will listen and or I will stand up for the woman who doesn't always get the chance to speak because I know what that feels like. Um, so um, I, that was that was my comment. I was so sh- but I do want to know from Manju. How do you take those uh, leaps of faith? How do you find that strength in yourself? Is there an example of when you went out on a limb and you did something and you're like, wow, I can't believe I did that. Um, Either where you've uh, massively failed and learned from it and or that you uh, took a leap of faith and it led you to something that is so amazing um, that wouldn't have been possible if you didn't take that risk. Ooh, that's a, a hard question. One thing I'll say to answer the first part of it, I just want to acknowledge the support of my partner throughout all of this or being in a relationship with someone who treats you as an equal. My husband has been that for me. Um, we've been together we've been married for 25 years and we've been together for, for almost 30. And, um, 
you know, for him to always say, you know what, you can do it and to know. And, and part of it, you know, honestly, we joke around and I say uh, I told him, you know, years ago, I learned confidence from you because, um, you know, I saw your bravado. I saw your high level of confidence and I knew you were a clown and you still <laughs> had that. And um, it's just a joke because he's incredibly smart and brilliant. Um, but just knowing that I had that with me, um, all the time. And I could, you know, um, when you talk about sort of taking those leaps of faith, we all need that right in our lives, no matter who it is, if it's, you know, close friends, if it's family members, if it's our partner, um, that is absolutely critical to doing this work. And I've, you know, I actually have seen some nonprofit directors who don't have that. And I see what a challenge it is, how struggling. So how it's such a struggle to get through even, you know, a day, a week when you have some of the, the hardest challenges. So I would just say in terms of a leap of faith um, that I took, um, I started uh, when I started very early on at South Asian Network, I decided, you know, this was the 10 year anniversary of 9-11. And I really wanted us to document what had happened to our communities. And so in putting together um, an event that talked about, you know, similar to the, the time we're in now, there were so many hate incidents and hate crimes that our community experienced after 9-11 because we were blamed for something we had nothing to do with. Right. We had nothing to do with 9-11. Um, and yet people, races took it out on us. Uh, putting together um, that event, talking about even some of the policies um, that were really pushed on us. This was special registration of Muslim men. These were racial profiling and surveillance policies. Um, and one thing I'll say, you know, I know that you two both have sort of a background um, in politics, too, is that um, we have a, a friend from um, Bruin Woods, a, a summer camp we used to go to regularly. And you will not believe um the day before I got a, an email saying that this uh, friend would show up and uh, but nothing from his staff or <clears throat> other people, um, you will not believe that is now Congressman Lou Correa, who just wanted to support me and my work. And I think that's like so emblematic, again, of people in this movement is just having that generosity and saying, you know what, Munji's doing this. It's important. And I want to support her and her work. And I mean, gosh, how amazing is that to just know that people who are extremely busy are going to be there for your community and are going to be there for you. Um, so I, I just, I have so many of those moments, frankly, it's hard to pick one, but uh, that was one. Manju, we, we have so many connections and I love what you said um, early in the program about connecting the dots. And there's so many ways for us to do that. And we really appreciate all the work that you're doing, um, you know, and that 10 year old girl that was inspired to become um, a, a civil rights um, advocate and change maker for our communities. It's amazing, Manju. 
Well, I want to just thank both of you. I mean, you are both, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, kick-ass women. And to, so to be in your company, um, not just for this podcast, but just in the work. I mean, you know, I've seen you both in action and to see that you are, whether it's in your jobs or outside of that, like working for the community, we are in this together, right? Um, and if I might, you know, leave the audience with sort of my life's motto, which I got from another kick-ass woman, Peggy Saika, who led Asian Law Caucus uh, for a long time and then APIP. Um, I'm not going to use a profanity that she used in hers, but uh, you might be able to guess it. Um, <laughs> she said, I'm nice, I'm reasonable, but don't mess with me. Mm-hmm. And so I've really tried to make that my life's motto is I'm nice. I don't need to be mean. Mm-hmm. I'm also reasonable in my asks. Don't mess with me. Because when you do, you're going to see what that involves. 